David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. Today's show is definitely a winner. We have one guest, former NFL coach Charlie Winner. Here's the interview that David and I recently had with him. I was reading your bio here. It said that you were a pilot in World War II. I was a radio operator and a gunner on a B-17 in World War II, and then we were shot down over Germany on our 17th mission. And I see you were a prisoner of war for six weeks in a German uh, camp? Yes, I was in a German uh, prison camp, and... Uh, as small as I am, I lost 15 pounds in the period of time I was in there. But I was very happy that I was in a German prison camp rather than a Japanese prison camp. Why was that? Well, the Japanese were very brutal to the American prisoners. And uh, at the time I was captured, I think the Germans felt that uh, they were on the run. And they did not mistreat us. They just didn't give us much food. Uh, we got a seventh of a loaf of that heavy, dark German bread a day and some dehydrated soup that looked like hay that never did fill out when you soaked it in water. <laughs> and after we were liberated, there was a warehouse outside of the prison camp that was packed to the ceiling with Red Cross food parcels that they neglected to hand out to us. <laughs> But other than that, uh, the Germans didn't mistreat us like the Japanese mistreated a lot of the prisoners. What did you do after you were released? After I was released in the service you're talking about? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, we were given orders to stay there at the prison camp because there was an Air Force base, a German Air Force base, a few miles away, and they were going to come in and fly us out. So the Russians were a bunch of young guys. They they were upset that we didn't tear the fences down. They said, you act like you're still prisoners. If you don't get out there and tear down these fences, uh, we're going to come through here with tanks. <laughs> so we tore down the fences, although it wasn't necessary. And we had to run of the countryside, and we had the Red Cross uh, food parcels, and we went over to this little fishing village of Bark. We were in a prison camp called Stalagluf 1, and it was uh, barked on the Baltic Sea. And we went over to this fishing village, and uh, uh, we traded some cigarettes for some German wine. And I was a young guy and wasn't used to drinking or anything, so I had a, a couple sweets of wine. And so we went down to the to the bay and took a German one of those German fishing boats where guys are rowing on each side. So I was with the smallest, so they said, you steer the boat, we'll row. And I had them going in circles. They said, if I didn't straighten out the boats, they're going to throw me in. 
that was pretty exciting. But it was uh, it was uh, a long enough in a prison camp that didn't do me any harm, but I learned to appreciate what I had. What made you decide that you wanted to play football in uh, college? Well, I came from a, a small town in New Jersey, Somerville, and uh, I didn't know much about football except we played in the sandlots a lot. And from the first time I went to practice in high school as a freshman, I was impressed with football and the people, who, the coaches who we had handling it. And at that time, I made up my mind, oh, well, I'd sure like to be a football coach, never thinking I was going to get to college because my family didn't have the finances. But uh, that's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. And uh, God led me in the right direction, and I got I got a chance to go to college and eventually get into pro football. Now, you went to college at Washington University in St. Louis. Yes. All, all my family went to Washington U. Oh my God, that's wonderful! That's wonderful. Yeah, except for me, you had to be smart to you had to be smart to get into Washington U. So I ended up at the University of Missouri. Well, but, that's not bad. Both of my daughters graduated from the University of Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but but not too many of of the people that go to Wash U want to become football coaches. Yeah, I, I have to say you're probably the only guy who uh, who went to Washington University who became a, a, an NFL coach. Yeah, I don't recall of any others. Uh, uh, I, I remember I went out to Washington University and. I didn't know I was going to get in or not, and first thing I know, I was in. I guess it's because I was a veteran. How did you end up picking Washington University? Well, I started college at Southeast Missouri State College in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, okay. which is south of St. Louis, and we played Washington University in St. Louis, and freshmen were allowed to play, although I didn't get to play a whole lot, but I was impressed with the school, and the academic uh, structure, and so I thought, well, I'm going to give it a chance. I have nothing to lose. And Washington had dropped football during World War II and hadn't started it up yet. So uh, uh, and they said they were going to start it that season. So I went out there. First thing I knew, I was in there, and they did not start it up that next season. I only got to play two, two uh, seasons, my junior year and my senior year. And but I was impressed with the school, and, and so went out there and had to work my tail off. I was about ready to quit school because I didn't have enough money, even with, even with the GI Bill. So I got a job in the school soda fountain, and from then on, I had it made because I'd get up and eat ice cream for breakfast, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm still eating. <laughs> so when you played at Washington University. Weeb Eubank was the coach. What was Weeb like as a coach at uh, Washington? Well, Weeb had just arrived at Washington University. He was the uh, head basketball coach at Brown and assistant football coach at Brown. Uh, Rip Eagle was the head coach. He worked under him. And, of course, Rip Eagle went to Penn State later on. Uh, Weeb was an energetic young guy and uh, uh, didn't leave any anything to uh, – Chance, he, he knew what he had. He, uh, we had a lot of veterans on the football team. 
but he knew that we, you know, we just that didn't have big time uh, caliber players. But uh, he he worked around it, and uh, he taught us to work and study hard, and and uh, it turned out that uh, uh, one of the first things he said to us, he had just married his oldest daughter to a halfback at Brown University, and he was kidding, and he said, uh, "Now I don't want any of you halfbacks dating my other two daughters." And I'm a veteran sitting in the back of the room, and I'm figuring. What the heck would I want with one of his daughters anyhow? <laughs> so then I saw one of them, and I ran into her up on the campus, and I said, she looked like a young girl. I said, hey, kid, how old are you? And she told me, I said, hey, you want to go have some ice cream? <laughs> so we went and had ice cream. So the ice cream sealed the deal? <laughs> I think it helped, because we're still eating ice cream. <laughs> Sixty-five now, years later, we're still eating it. <laughs> wow! So, did Washington U play at Francis Field then, or was yeah, it known? Yeah, and, and they're still I, playing there. Because I remember sneaking through uh, through the, the the metal fence there to, to watch a couple games when I was a teenager. Don't tell anybody, but <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I'm I'm anxious to go back there. I'm being taken into the Washington University uh, Sports Hall of Fame in uh, February. And I'm anxious to go back because there was one bar in the fence not too far from the entrance to the office that you could slide up and down and get in in the stadium. And I'm anxious to see if it's still there. Yeah, I think they probably changed it after all these years. But I, boy, I can <laughs> remember one of the highlights of being a, you know, a kid was on a Saturday afternoon. Yes. Either ride your bicycle or walk over to Washington U and, and slip yes. through the fence. I'll tell you. It, it, Washington is a good school, and it has a, a, a great campus, and we always had like St. Louis, and uh, so we went back, and I, I was there for uh, five years coaching the Cardinals. So what took them so long to put you in their Hall of Fame? I don't know. I don't know how those things work. <laughs> Maybe they did it alphabetically. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> So, but I'm very happy with it, even though it did take all these years. I'm I'm glad it's happening before I pass away. <laughs> so, so what did Wee Bubank think when he found out that you were dating his daughter? He he didn't say anything except uh, they graded the films just like they do in, in pro football, and I had pretty good grades. And uh, once I started dating Nancy, my grades went down a little bit. And then when I would date Nancy and I'd go over to their house, when he when he thought it was time for me to go home, he'd sit down on a couch and take off his shoes and socks. <laughs> he wouldn't say anything, but I knew it was time to go. <laughs> Not too subtle, but it worked. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> you didn't have to hit me in the head with a hammer. <laughs> So when he became a coach with the Browns, did he want you to take the job at Case Tech so you could also help him out scouting with the Browns? Uh, I I stayed at Washington University and coached freshman football and got my master's degree after we've left. And uh, I I got a job in uh, I had a job. Uh, at Case Institute of Technology in Cleveland. 
as the backfield coach. Lou Saban, who was the captain of the Browns and a great linebacker at the time, was the head coach, and he had just gotten a job. And so uh, on Paul Brown's recommendation, uh, I, I got the job as the assistant coach there, and I was there for four years. And uh, I did do scouting for the Browns, and I worked on a telephone on Sundays up in the press box with Blanton Collier, where I learned an awful lot of football. I I will assume when uh, we asked you to go with him to Baltimore, that was a pretty easy decision? Oh, yeah. It was no no decision at all. I mean, uh, I'd been to the Browns training camp, and I'd go and watch him practice and all that, and I... I I knew the system. When he went to uh, uh, Baltimore, he used the same system that we used at Washington University, which was a variation of the Cleveland Brown system. And so I I, I knew what he wanted me to do, and it, it worked out. Uh, and I'll tell you, that I I think a lot of the players coached me rather than me coaching them. Uh, Don Schuler was one of the players at that time, Gino Marchetti, Art Donovan, Raymond Barry, and uh, I think I learned a lot from those guys. The, the first time I saw Raymond Barry on the, on the campus, I said, Hi, Ray. Congratulations on being with us. Happy to see you. And he looked at me and he said, My name is Raymond. <laughs> <laughs> so from then on, everybody called him Raymond. <laughs> But I learned a lot from those guys. Did you have any interaction? Did you have any interaction with Paul Brown when you were with the Browns? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, you see, Nancy grew up with the Brown family. We coached at Great Lakes Naval Training Station during World War II, and Paul Brown was the head coach. We coached basketball and football up there at the time, and so uh, Nancy kind of grew up with the Brown family and. And like, you know, Mike Brown, who runs the Cincinnati Bengals now, she babysat for him when he was a, a little boy. <laughs> so uh, I, I got to know Paul pretty well. What was he like? He was one step ahead of you all the time. Yeah, I'd be up in the press box on game day with Blanton Kyer, who had a great football mind. And Blanton would be telling him about different plays to call and so forth. Paul called all the plays by sending the guards in. And all of a sudden, Blanton would get upset. He said, no, we're not doing, we're not doing that, but Paul's deviating. A couple plays later, they'd get a touchdown and Blanton would say, now I see what he was doing. I mean, he had a great football mind and he could, he could see, you know, a lot of us, after a game, the newspaper will talk to us about the game and will say, well, I really will have to see the film and know what happened. Paul knew what was happening. Well, what was he like away from the football field? He was, he was a very nice guy, liked to have a lot of fun, always joking around and uh, serious, but he was a real gentleman, a real gentleman. And, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the Brown family, the whole family was great. When we became the coach of the head coach of the Colts, was did we think he was ready for that? Yeah, he did. He'd been with the Browns for quite a while. You know, uh, we've had a successful career in high school, and then in college, and then in pro football. So uh, he thought he was ready. He, he 
Uh, Reeve was a, a, a running back and quarterback by nature, but Brown had him coaching the offensive line where he, he learned a tremendous amount of football. And uh, he felt he was ready, and he, he, he was happy to take the opportunity. Because they were a fresh team. They had just started it like the year before. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, he, he, he felt he was ready. Most, most of us that are in coaching, you know, uh, strive to be a head coach and, uh, you, you want to move on. I mean, if, if you have a coach that's contented to be an assistant coach there, uh, you better look for somebody else. Oh, and in coaching the Colts, it didn't hurt that, uh, that we've had a, a quarterback by the name of John Unitas. That's right. That, but our, our, our first quarterback was, uh, uh, George Inc. from Arizona. And, uh, we got John Unitas because Pittsburgh had drafted him. And, uh, uh Frank Camp, who was the coach of, uh, Louisville at the time, called Weeb and said, hey, there's a guy at Pittsburgh let loose. You want to try to get him if you can. So we always had a tryout in the spring at Baltimore because you get a lot of letters from guys you think they can play, and you you filter them out and bring them in for a tryout on a Saturday, and you time them in the 40 and different drills and so forth. Well, Unitas came. We invited him to that, that camp, and we he stood out right away, the uh, way he could throw the football and so forth. So we signed him, and that first year, George Shaw was our number one draft choice, a quarterback from Oregon. He was a pretty good quarterback, and he could run, and a very intelligent quarterback. And we were we were doing fairly well, and George Shaw injured his knee, had to have an operation. So John Unitas was sent in right away, never came out. He, he was the number one quarterback from Arizona. And there were no questions about it. Raymond Barry, Raymond Barry told us that Johnny Unitas and him used to practice before practice and after just throwing and catching the ball. And that's what made him so good. And then when Ollie Matson, or not Ollie Matson, when, uh, Lenny Moore came in, they brought Lenny in and said, here, here's how you can become a better player and basically brought him into their whole little practice regiment. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, Raymond and John would stay on the field for the longest time after. And Gino Marchetti used to say, wouldn't it be awful to have a whole team of Raymond Barrys? In order to punish the team, the coach would have to say, come on, we're going in early tonight. (laughs) (laughs) They they just stayed out there and tried to work things out. And uh, I can remember one time we had a, uh, uh, a fourth and one situation. And we didn't have real good field position, but we decided to go for it. For he, he gave the signal to John, and we had a certain running play designed for for that situation. And United calls a quick out, <laughs> and boy, we about we had our hearts were in our throats, and he completed it for a first down. <laughs> Unitas was a good thinker. He was a good thinker. He he and Raymond went over the films, you know, and and uh, Raymond had good moves. And you know, most receivers have a counter move for their favorite move. 
he had a counter for his counter. <laughs> he was always working. And he ran such precise routes. It, it, oh. it always amazed me. Always, always did. He was, he was, and he had tremendous hands. Boy, he had strong hands. And he wasn't the biggest guy in the world. And he had glasses. He wore glasses. He could, you know, his eyes weren't that great. And he carried his bath scales with him on trips so he could weigh himself every day. <laughs> Art Donovan did that too. Didn't he carry a scale too to weigh himself every day? Every day. <laughs> Art Donovan, wasn't he concerned about his weight? Yeah, who? Uh, uh, Our Donovan. Donovan wasn't concerned about oh, his no, weight at Don, all. When we went there, Donovan was over three hundred pounds, right. and and he couldn't he couldn't stay down in the stance longer than a couple of seconds. You had to go on. You couldn't go on a quick count with uh, on a long count with Donovan. But we put in his contract that he had to report to camp at two sixty five. And he's a big beer drinker and baloney eater. Oh, is he upset about it? But he became a uh, all pro, and he appreciated it later on. He was yeah. the polar. He was the polar opposite of Unitas and Raymond Berry with practice habits and training. It seems like <laughs> he would come out on the field before a game, and he would kind of stroll down to the goalpost and then he would shake one leg and shake the other leg and then shake his arms and he said, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> and as they say, if you put him, if you went on a long count, he'd have to get up, get a breath. <laughs> so he, he was, he had a great sense of humor and he, he was, he was probably one of the slowest guys we ever had, but he was one of the quickest guys from wall to wall. We used to play a lot of racquetball at that time. And and he was excellent in racquetball because he could he was so quick. I, I would figure he just took up a lot of space on the court and didn't have to move. No, no, <laughs> he, he was quick. He was quick. <laughs> so, what was your role? Were you on more with the offense or the defense? When I went with Baltimore, the, the structure of coaching was different in those days. I I was the offensive uh, end coach and the defensive end coach. So I, I coached Raymond Barry and Colt Dion and all the receivers, and I coached Gino Marchetti uh, and Don Joyce, who was on our on our defense. What, what was Marchetti like? Marchetti was like a cat, like a panther. He was quick. He had uh, good football intelligence, uh they have a football play, they've had it for years, called the sucker play. And uh, it's when the you pull a guard, you, you pull a guard, and usually the defensive lineman over that guard will follow down the line for him, and then you give the ball carrier, the, uh, and he goes in that hole. And it's usually pretty successful because they, they flow with the, with the pulling guards. And but Gino was a defensive end. He was one position removed for that, and he would always slide in and get the play. And I said, Gino, how do you know when it's going to be a sucker play? And he said, it's the only play where the tackle turns out on me and the guard pulls away from me. So he said, when that happens, I just slide in. <laughs> Good. That's what I mean. You learn from the players. There are a lot of natural things that that they pick up themselves. That 58 championship game, 
no one understood the significance of it until years after. What was that game like? Well, it was a tough, darn game. I'll tell you, it was cold as hell up there in New York. And Gino broke his leg in that game, and he didn't play in the uh, sudden death part. He, yeah, but he, he made him bring him back out on the sideline and, and watched it. And it was, you know, we had the game under pretty much control, and then uh, we lost the ball going in on a, a touchdown early in the second half. And then from here on, the Giants got momentum, and, boy, we were on the ropes. Well, as a matter of fact, we were, we were behind, and we just had seconds left. I don't remember how many. But we had practiced that situation. That's another thing by, you know, we was always well prepared. We had practiced a situation where time was running out. We had to get the field goal team in, and we knew about how much time it took. So, uh, we, we worked the ball as far as we could, and then we sent the field goal team in. And Steve Myra, I think it was from South Dakota, uh, kicked the field goal. <laughs> that was the beginning. And a lot of people turned their television sets off because they didn't know it was a, a sudden death period. The referees, the referees didn't know either. I think the, <laughs> I think Bert Bell made the call. Yeah, I don't know, but boy, it was it was exciting, and I think that led really to the growth of professional football. I mean, because you know, people tell me even today they don't like professional football because it's not as exciting as college football. I watch college football, and I love it, and I do think it's exciting. It's it's a fantastic game, but. Oh, if you get involved in a pro football game, it's just just as exciting, and the players are more skilled because they're the same skilled players that they were in college, but they're they have the experience now. Well, and it's generally the most skilled players that that make it to the NFL. That's right. You know, you know people will ask me, well, what do you think of that this guy on on such and such a team in in the pros? And I say, listen, if they're on a team. They're exceptional players, so they wouldn't be there. Frank Gifford, to this day, blames the referees for those two bad spots where he didn't get first downs. <laughs> yeah. And Marchetti goes, no, they did analytics of it, and look, and he was short. Yeah, he was. A guy named Bowden, he's related to uh, Bobby Bowden, that was at Florida State, has written several books. And he he came down and interviewed me because he wrote a book about the greatest game. And he went over the films of that game with the, uh, the Philadelphia Eagle coach who's now in Kansas City and looked at the films. And then I looked at it with him. And there's no question that that ball was short. And I don't blame Gifford for... Uh, for uh, Complaining about it, he he did fumble the three times that game. How difficult was it for the players to lift up Weeb and carry him <laughs> off? You know, they 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 carried him off the field several different times, and one time uh, they got a hold of his leg, and his leg was in an awkward position, and it dislocated his hip. He had to have a hip operation. <laughs> For being carried off the field. <laughs> he said, no more carry me off the field. <laughs> as long as I've known Weave, he's always going to go on a diet with somebody. <laughs> After this brief break, 
We'll be back with part two of our interview with Charlie Winner. You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. <laughs> 